need to look at your Bible not as a book that you study or an obligation that you fulfill, but as God speaking to you. You need to ask yourself this question, do I need God speaking to me? You know, some people don't hear from Him because they don't want Him to speak to them. They like what they're doing. Well, I'm going to say that. They don't want Him to speak to them all the time. They want answers to certain questions and then they don't want to hear from Him again until they've got another need. And you'll discover that God doesn't generally work that way. He may work that way with you in the beginning to draw you in, but there comes a place where you have enough knowledge of Him and enough awareness of your maturity and responsibility that you need to come to God for all that He is and not just for what He can do for you. And that's called maturing and growing up. And because He's a loving Father, He will not allow you to stay where you are. He'll pester you, challenge you, because He wants to see you grow and mature, because that's for your benefit as well as for His. So we're learning, we've been learning, and this should be, I believe this is going to be the end of this series, on sowing and reaping. We talked about certain principles that the kingdom of God operates under. And then the world, Satan has taken those principles and and taught them to the world as perversions of them. And so we call it the upside-down kingdom. We live in an upside-down kingdom compared to the truth of God's kingdom. And we're not going to go back over all that again. Uh, Just suffice it to say that one of those principles is how things transact in the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, they happen by sowing and reaping. The perversion of that is what we use in the world, and that's buying and selling. Now, there's nothing wrong with buying your cars and groceries in, in, in our normal commerce. That's okay. But in the thing, we bring that into the things of God, and we think we buy and sell with God. So we make transactions with Him. Romans 4 talks about that, that if what you're doing with God is, is a transaction where you're buying and selling, whether you're earning something, then it's not by grace. So if what you're receiving from God is something you think you've earned, then it's not by grace. And in fact, in I think it's Galatians, Paul says, you've fallen from grace. Everything we have with God is received with Him, is received from Him by His grace and received by us by our faith. And so... So it's a transaction, but it's a, different, it's, a, it's, a, it's a transaction that's based on what's best for you. Because sowing and reaping is what's best for you. God's done for us what's best for us. And as a result, He's reaped back a harvest. He gave one son's life for us and has reaped back millions of sons and daughters to love Him. So God, God doesn't require something of us that He doesn't do first. But in the world system, we're in it for what we get out of it. So you may do the same activity, but the motive's different. The motive is, what am I going to get? I want the best deal here. And again, when you're buying something like cars and things like that, that may be fine. But when it comes with interacting with one another and interacting with God, that's counter or contrary to the principle on which the kingdom of God operates. And that explains why, and we're going to discuss this morning a little more, why it's not working so well for many of us. So that's what we're talking about. Our, our basic scripture is in John chapter 12. I'd like you to turn there because it's been a little while since we've actually looked at it. John chapter 12. We've talked about, and we finished last week, a part of this series called The Principle of the Seed. Because sowing is based on the seed, and everything is determined by the seed. Jesus said in verse 24, John 12, 24, Most assuredly I say unto you, 
Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Then he goes into verse 25 and explains what he's specifically talking about here. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it unto eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, my father, him, him, my father will honor. So the context of what Jesus is talking here about is not money, although it includes money, as we'll see. It's not time. All the things we've looked at, we've looked at various things in our lives that can be seed. We've talked about the fact that so much of our life we're based on looking at a harvest. What I need a harvest in my life. I need this. I need some more money. I need more income. Some of you may be saying, and I know some of you are, I need a job. I need a new place. This is what I need. And what we've been learning is the Bible teaches us not to look at what you need, but look at the seed that you already have in your hand. What do I have in my hand? And we ended last week with two very powerful examples from the Bible. One in 1 Kings 17, which is where, Jesus, where God sent the prophet Elijah to a woman in, who was not even a Jew to, for her to provide for him. And she, he sends her to a woman that doesn't, that's about to starve to death. And the principle there is God was not looking to what they had to see whether or not they could meet their need because God's the source. All what sowing really is, is taking what you have, putting into His hands, and allowing Him to multiply it back to you. And it's understanding that He's the one that can multiply. You can't multiply anything. In fact, the tighter we hold on to it, the more we'll squeeze the life out of it. So the only thing we can do is the unless part. Unless we let go of that seed, unless we sow that seed. But if we do, we put it into His hands. And we saw an example in 1 Kings 17 of where the prophet, of listening to God, came to her and said, you know, what, you know, go make a sandwich for me. That's the modern day version of it. You know, make a cake for me. And she said, sir, all I've got is just enough oil and enough, and enough flour to make a, a, one cake for my son and myself and then we're going to die. That's her vision of life. Because when she looked at what she had, she just had enough for one more meal, and that was over. Now a man of God is coming looking for an offering. I'm just bringing it down to modern things. He's saying, no, before you do that, provide something for me first. And what she has isn't enough for her already. But then again, it isn't going to be enough for tomorrow. She's going to die tomorrow. And what she does is she brings it to him. And when she brought it to him, God caused it to multiply. And it ends by saying that her vat of oil, her jar of oil, and her bin of flour never ran out as long as there was a famine. There's a famine in the land. There's a famine in the land. And then we ended with the story of Jesus, the faint well story we talked about before, of Jesus out in the the wilderness, and they've run, run out of food, and the disciples come to him and say, look, here's our plan. Send the people away so the villages so that they can buy food and come back. And Jesus says, no, no, you already have enough. See, that's what the Lord's told me here. Everything that's needed in this congregation, I don't mean for the church, I mean for all of you, is here. It's all here now. It's all here now. It's all here now. Then what's the problem? We're going to have to learn how to sow what we have into God's hands. And Jesus said, what do you have? And they said, we got a little boy's lunch. He said, and this is the key. 
He said, take what it is you have and bring it to me. Because what they found is in his hands, what they had ended up being more than enough. Then we saw that even Jesus didn't rely upon himself because he turned and took what they gave him and turned to the Father and thanked the Father for it. And then they took it and they multiplied it. He gave it out. And by the time they were due, at least 20,000 people ate and were satisfied. And there were 12 baskets left over, I believe, to take back to the little boy's house. One basket for each disciple to get a lesson in their senses of what it means when you take what you do have and you sow it to God and watch God take what he can do with it and multiply it back. And that's where we ended last week. What we're going to do now is apply this in some other areas as we bring it down to a close. So there's several principles I want to mention to you first, and then we're going to get into what this is really, really all about. Um, how, uh, first of all, uh, one thing I want you to see, go with me to Galatians chapter 6. And this is a principle. Sowing and reaping is a principle of life, principle of the kingdom. And because it's a principle, it operates all the time. Just like gravity is a principle, it operates all the time. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Whatever you sow, you will reap. For he who sows to his flesh will from his flesh reap corruption. He who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap everlasting or eternal life. Look at this. Let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season you will reap if you do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have an opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So the principle here is whatever a man sows, he will reap. You've been operating under this principle your whole life, whether you knew it or not. In fact, much of what you have operating in your life is a result of reaping what you've already sown. So if you don't like what's in your life right now, you need to take and you need to look at what you've been sowing. I was having a conversation with someone this week, and to be fair to you, I don't remember who it was. <laughs> and in the middle of the conversation, it suddenly dawned them, oh my goodness, I realize what I've been saying about my life. No wonder these things have been happening to me. Remember we learned words are seeds? Whatever it is you have, whatever you have, time, words, is a seed you can sow, and you will sow. The difference is, are you choosing how you sow it? Or are you just sowing it indiscriminately? Because it will produce a harvest. So you've been operating under this principle your whole life. So essentially what's in your life right now is a result of seed what you've sown. And we could spend a lot of time in that. It also applies in the positive as well as in the negative. Gravity will work for you or against you depending on what you do with it. Right now, it's working for you. It's Otherwise, we'd all be kind of floating around here, you know, and it'd be kind of hard to talk to you because I don't know where you are. Now you're sitting in a seat stable, and gravity is helping you. 
But if you go up on your roof this afternoon and you take a misstep, gravity will work against you. And it's up to you whether it's working for you or against you because it just works. So this works in the positive or in the negative. And I'm just sharing these basic ideas about it to give you seed seed for thought so that the Spirit of God can begin to open your eyes to see things in your life. Because again, we could spend a whole year on this, but there's a direction that I really feel God wants us to go with this, so we're going to move on. It works under any condition. In Genesis chapter 26 is a story of Isaac, uh, Abraham's son Isaac. And it says in the beginning that there was a great famine in the land. And God told him not to go to Egypt, whereas God had told his father when there was a famine in the land to go down to Egypt and have their needs met. And he told Abraham, he told Isaac not to go down. And then there's a little story there because he got into the same situation with his wife that his father did with Abimelech as his father did with Abimelech. And then it comes to the end in in verse, uh, in, in around verse 12, it said, and Isaac sowed and reaped a harvest that year of a hundredfold. And the key there is to take the first part and connect it with the second part. Isaac sowed in a famine. Remember, these are principles of the kingdom of God. They are truth. And they will work regardless of the circumstances. And I say that because, again, remember the thinking of the world over here? Thinking, well, it's it just you know it, it it may work for you because you were a lawyer. I've shared my testimony of how, in essence, we went broke several times because I did some stupid things, and how God delivered us out of it. But the way God delivered us out of it by what I'm talking about this sowing and reaping. So I've known of people that that this worked in the jungle, missionaries. That this has worked in the jungle. And so it may not have been that their bank account increased, but what God met their needs in other ways. The, the widow woman in Zarephath, she didn't suddenly get $100,000 deposited in her bank account. She got, every time she went to that, to that jar of oil, there was what she needed was there. I remember one time we had come back from Oklahoma. We'd come back from Bible school. And, and, and while we were out there, there was a particular car that I had always wanted. And we were driving by. I don't want to get into the story because we get bogged down in it. But to, to shorten the story, a, a car I'd always wanted. It was, it was, a, it was several years old. And, and, and Anita said, do I really think God would want you to have that car? I said, well, I don't need that. You know, I, I want something a little less expensive. It wasn't, it wasn't you know, an extravagant car. It, just, it was just the kind of thing that I had wanted. So make a long story short, the, we, the woman that was selling was happened to be there. We met her had a great, very great transaction, and because of the guy I ended up was working for, I ended up, the bank, one of our clients loaned me the money, uh, interest only, unsecured. So instead of getting a car loan at 12%, because this is back when interest rates were very high, I got it at, pri- at the lowest possible rate, and I had no lien on the car. Couldn't get any better. So for a year, so I'm just paying interest. God calls us back here. We arrive back here. Things are going nice. Everything's going right. I get a letter from the bank in Oklahoma saying, you've taken the car. we hear you've taken the car out of state because they see the change in address. 
um, we're calling the loan. I've now got to come up with $6,000 in two weeks. I don't have $6,000 to give them. So I said, God, what do I do? And the Lord spoke to me and says, call them and tell them you'll have it for them in a month. I said, and where am I going to get it from? He just says, call them and tell them you will have it for them in a month. So I did that. And in one month, there was in my bank account, because of the way funds had cleared everything, exactly what I needed to send them. So God provides it all kinds of ways as long as you see that He is your source. But I say this because a lot of times, yeah, but it won't work for me. Because. What you're saying is the kingdom of God's principles won't work for you because you've got a situation that's more powerful and more real than God's kingdom. That's exactly what Satan wants us to believe. You can't do it because. It won't work because. God's principles will always work because He is God. And He is He has authority over all of those reasons why it won't work. So here is one of my favorite ones. Isaac sowed in a famine in one in that year received a hundredfold harvest. Now, it's also important to understand that this is a principle, it's not a law. And here's the difference, very subtle. This is very subtle, and this is often where we miss it. A principle is a truth that will always work. But you can make that principle into a law. In the Bible, the law it means something that you rely upon where you, that you, because you perform it, you're going to get a result. Here's the difference. A principle is something I do because it's the right thing to do. A law is where I learn how to manipulate something to get what I need. And this is so subtle because we can listen to teachings on this or on finances and find out, okay, I've got this need over here. What is it I have to do so that God's going to meet my need? See the difference? So the focus is on what is it I have to do because if I do every, if I push every right button, flip every correct lever, turn every correct dial, then I'm going to get out of this vending machine what I need. It's seeing these principles as something that I can now control if I do all the right things that I'm going to get what I need. We're going to see more as we go through today why this is important. It's kind of like looking at this is a vending machine. These electronic vending machines now, you see that Snickers bar you wanted, and it says B7. You know, so you put your whatever you got to put in now, dollar or whatever it is, and you, know, and you push, you know, what is it? I got to push B, and then I got to push 7. And it goes, and it goes, starts to turn away, and doesn't turn all the way around, and that Snickers bar is hanging there. And what happens? You get upset. You want to shake it, you know? You get upset. Why? Listen to me. Because you did everything you were supposed to do and you didn't get the Snickers bar. But pastor, I tithe. But pastor, I've done this. I've made these confessions. 
I've put in the right amount of money. And I've pushed the right buttons. And I still haven't got the blessing I'm supposed to get. The motive was wrong. What we've done when we do that is we're very subtly taking the thinking of the world and we've simply found, oh, I'll bring that over and apply that to God now. Because what I've done with my employer, I can now do with God. God's not your employer. He's your God. (laughs) You see the difference? It's a very subtle difference and we can slip into that And the way you know it, you're in it, is when you get upset because you didn't get what you were supposed to. When you find yourself getting upset with God, I didn't get what I was supposed to get, that tells me that somewhere inside I've developed an attitude that I've put the right amount of money in, I've pushed the right letters, and I still don't have the snicker bar. Job was like that. Job was a righteous man. Job was an upright man. But Job, under pressure, what was really going on inside of him came out because he got so mad because he said, the problem is this is God that's treating me this way. If it were anybody else, I could go to a lawyer, serve him with a summons, and haul him into court. But I can't get you in court. Just think of the attitude. That means he thought he was being cheated out of something that he was entitled to. And God answers him by telling him what he was entitled to. Because you've heard me say this before. Before you start stomping your feet and wanting what you're entitled to, realize that if you get what you're entitled to, you'll get all you're entitled to. That's what Paul means when he says you've fallen from grace. If you're doing part of it, then you're doing all of it. And God works with us. He's teaching us. He's changing our attitude. But understand that. It's not, it's not something because I push the right levers, turn the right dial, put the right amount of money in, and I automatically get something back. This is a principle. Any more than you earn the right to sit in that seat under gravity. It just works. All right, we'll move on, and I believe you'll see this, this difference as we go on. Okay. Now, what we're going to talk about now is really the heart of the whole thing. How you sow. How you sow is critical. First thing, sowing purposefully, on purpose. A farmer doesn't just go to the, wherever they buy seed and just say, I want some seed. And they give him this barrel or whatever, bags of seed, and he just goes out in the, in the field and just throws it around. He decides ahead of time what harvest he wants. And the harvest he wants determines the seed he's going to get by. So he determines the seed he's going to sow by the harvest that he wants. Then he's very careful about where it's sown and how it's sown. He can't just say, well, I just throw it out there and it's going to pro- it'll produce something. But Matthew 13 makes it clear some of it's going to fall on the road and it won't even germinate. Some of it's going to fall on shallow soil and it won't last when the sun comes up. Some of it's going to fall on soil you didn't plow up and it's going to produce not very much and some of it's going to, you didn't weed it, so it's it's not going to produce, it'll grow but it won't produce much fruit. So 
you choose the harvest that you want and determines the, the seeds you're going to sow. So we've talked before about one of the seeds you can, one of the harvests you can reap is either mercy, either, either mercy or, a lot, or unmerciful. And you choose that by whether you're merciful to others affects how much mercy you get back. So it's being purposeful in what I sow. It's not just doing it indiscriminately. It's also the way you sow it. And we're going to begin to talk about money. You can't talk about that in church, you know. We're going to begin to talk about money in a few minutes because how we sow that's important. And this is one of these God's dealt with me about in my own life about how we sow the finances that we sow. Just the attitude we have in doing it. Do you just drop it in a bucket? That's like taking seed and just throwing it out there. Or do you purposefully give it and sow it? So how you sow is very important to the kind and the quality of the harvest that you receive back. Okay. Now remember, we've learned that in the kingdom of God, the ultimate principle of everything is love because the nature of God is love. It's all an expression of His nature and what He's like. So we've seen that the very essence of sowing and reaping in the kingdom of God is not what's best for me, it's what's best for somebody else. That's ultimately love. 1 Corinthians uh, 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 13 starting in verse 4 through verse 7, talks about the attributes, what that kind of love is like. It's not self-seeking. It doesn't easily, it isn't offended. All those things are indications of whether or not it's coming out of love or it's not coming out of love. And so, so we see here that the motivation for sowing in the kingdom of God has to come out of a heart of love. Love for others, and then we're going to see also love for God. The heart is everything when it comes to the kingdom of God. The heart is everything when it comes to the kingdom of God, and especially in this area. And this is where so many of us miss it. We don't understand. Remember, sowing and reaping is an exchange that's motivated by love. Not what's best for me, but what's best for someone else. Turn with me to um, James chapter 2. And in this section of Scripture, James is talking about partiality, preferring some Christians over other Christians, seeing us as, as, as uh, some as better than others. And then he says uh, in verse 7, don't blaspheme the noble name by which you are called. Verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law, law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as, you, as yourself, you do well. So this principle in the kingdom of God is a royal law, a royal principle. It's because it's the principle of the royalty of the king. It's what God does towards others. John chapter 3 verse 16 says, For God so what? That he what? That he gave. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So his motive for sowing his son into the world was that he loved us. And he loved us more than he loved himself because he was willing to let go of his own son because we needed his son more than he wanted his son. 
So he was willing. And then you've got Jesus. We just started by John chapter 12. Jesus took, because he's talking there about his own life, sowing his own life as seed. So he loved you. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, For I'll be crucified with Christ. Therefore, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And then the really powerful thing, it says, Who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul didn't just see Christ as giving his life for the church. Paul saw it personally. He gave his life for me. He loved me so much that he took his life and sowed it so that he might have me. But the motive was that he loved me. And so the motive for our sowing, the heart of sowing, has to be a heart of love for what's best for someone else. And then we'll see when it comes to sowing into God, our love for him. All right. So the heart is everything. Our heart and our attitude has much to do with the results. Let's go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. somewhere. I'll be very frank with you. There was a period of time when these verses scared me. I was scared too strong. I just didn't like reading them. Because my image was God was trying to take something from me. And that's this thinking. They're just after my money. God's trying to take something from me. Because I did not understand the principle that we're learning today. If God wanted to take something from me, what could stop him? I never thought of that before. If he really wanted to take something from me, you really think I can stop him? I got a hold of this wallet and you're not going to get anything out of it. But that was my thinking. But I was raised that way. But again, we're all raised that way. That's the idea of, the, of religion. Is God wants to give us as little as he has to and he wants to take from us everything we've got in exchange. And so what happens when you think of God that way? You want to spend as little time around him as possible. You want to get in and out of the doors as fast as you can because he may require something of me. And I want to sit as far back as I can. I'm not speaking to you people in the back. But I mean, that's where I was. I wanted to sit in the back. I wanted to get in, get it over with, and get out. I had fulfilled my obligation. And I wanted to get out before God took something from me that I didn't want to give him. Because that's how I saw him. 
And I believed, my attitude was, that he was stingy in what he wanted to give me. I would never have used the word stingy because I would never have admitted that before. But that I've got to do everything just right. Oh, push all the right buttons, put the right amount of money in, in order for God to give me what it is I need from him. To the point that I wouldn't ask him. I would just handle it all by myself. At least I thought I was. It's because I didn't really know him. And I didn't really know what he was like and how good he is. And realize just what I said. If he was going to take things, want to take things from me, there's nothing that's going to stop him. And the only thing that restricts what I receive from him is me, not him. Verse that changed my life was Romans 8.32. For he who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also together with him freely give us all things? And I spent a week meditating on that scripture. And it dawned on me what that's saying. Wait a minute. If God didn't hold back his own son, was willing to give him for me, why would I think he's holding anything else back? He's not. To find Second Corinthians chapter eight. All right. Verse one. Now he's well, I'll get into it. In order to understand some of what he's talking about here, a little background. This is written to believers in the city of Corinth. Corinth is in the southern part of Greece. And in that time, Greece was divided into two areas under Roman law. There was the northern area called Macedonia, and we'll see that in a minute, because he has them kind of against, pitting against each other. The lower area is called Achaia, which is where Corinth is, where Athens is. Um, but the upper area is where Philippi is and where Paul, first of all, went on his first missionary journeys, and then he ended up down in the southern part in Achaia. And so what's happened now is there's a tremendous, there's a tremendous famine in, in the world at the time. There's real poverty in the world, and especially in this part of the world. But the real poverty, the real lack, was in Jerusalem among the believers, the Christians in Jerusalem. So Paul had made an appeal for the other churches to contribute to the support of the, of the, of the church, of the church in, in Jerusalem. And that's kind of the background here. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches in Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. Now that gets a little complicated there, but what he's talking about is they were going through a very difficult trial in Macedonia, in the northern area, and he's talking about that, that in the abundance of their joy and out of their deep poverty, they abounded in riches of liberty. In other words, they were generous even in the midst of their lack to their joy. Verse 3, For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. 
So Paul saying, they contacted me, pleading with me that I would receive this offering for the saints in Jerusalem. And they gave out of their ability and beyond their ability, and they get it willingly, not because somebody made them feel guilty, not because somebody pressured them, not because somebody uh, you know, used any kind of influence on them, because out of the love of their heart and the abundance of their heart, they asked if they could give more than they'd already given. So it's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. And Paul is trying to show the church at Corinth this heart. Verse 5, And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord, and then to us by the will of God. The reason the heart is so important to God is you're connected to it. And so what he's saying here is, see, he's not focused so much on the money that they gave. He's focused on themselves, giving themselves. And he said, not only did they give this wonderful contribution, they'd first of all given their lives to the Lord. And then they gave themselves to me. Remember what Jesus said. He said, unless a grain of wheat is sown in the ground, and then he talks about sowing his life. And then he talks about us sowing our lives. Say, unless we take up our cross and die, unless we sow our lives, unless we let go of our lives to Him, trust our lives to Him, it remains alone and can produce nothing for the kingdom of God. So Paul's saying, first of all, they gave themselves. And see, once you've given yourselves, everything else follows. See, we want to, <laughs> and I'm talking to me too, we, we want to bargain well, okay, what, how little do I have to give? Well, my car is yours, God. You can have my car. I'll trust you with that. I'll trust you with this. I'll give this to you, Lord. But somewhere there's usually something precious to us we're holding on to. And it may not be money in your case. It may be vanity or pride, what people think of you. It may be, I want to look my best. Well, it's must fine to look our best, but... What if God, King David, we talked about him before, that when the Ark of the Covenant was being brought back into Jerusalem, David laid his dignity down and danced before the Lord. And his wife came to him and said, shameful the way the king acted today in front of all his people and all, of his, all the maidens. And David said, I wasn't dancing in front of them. <laughs> I was dancing before my God. David's perspective wasn't, what do people think of me? David's perspective was, what do you think of me? And what do I think of you? That's where David's heart was. He'd given himself to God. So he wasn't concerned what people thought about him. Now, David was far from perfect. But that's where his heart was. That's why God says about him, he was a man after my own heart. Oh, that that would be our testimony. Oh, that that would... But God, I did all these things. Yeah, but you... but you weren't a man after my heart. I think it's the church at Ephesus Jesus writes a letter to and says, you know, you've done all these good things. The only thing is you've left your first love. You've done all these good things for me, but you've stopped loving me first. 
That's really all God wants. It's, it, this walk with him is so, so simple. We complicate it. It comes down to two things. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy might, with all thy soul. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. Love God with all your heart in everything you do and love one another the same way and you're all set. You're all set. It's really simple. It's really simple. Okay. Oh boy, we got to move along. Verse 6. And so we urge Titus that as he had begun, he would also complete this grace in you that you may abound in everything in faith and speech and knowledge and all intelligence and all, all diligence in your love for us. All right. Now let's go over to chapter 9. Verse 5. Therefore I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand that you which previously had promised that you may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. So they've communicated with Paul that they, what they want to give. And Paul's now sending a messenger for two reasons. First of all, they may have forgotten. Do you ever make an intention to do something and you didn't act on it right away? And you notice that as time passes, your resolve to carry that out gets weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker. Lord, I give myself to you. Oh, God, I give myself to you. And somewhere before the end of the day, we've just kind of faded away because that's what human beings are like. And so God knows that. So Paul sent a messenger to remind them of the commitment that they'd made and to help them in the process of, of, of actually giving it. Okay. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of the time to prepare your generous gift before that you previously promised that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. We hear that verse over and over again in offerings. But we don't usually get the rest of this. So let each of us give as he purposes in his heart not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work, as it is written, He dispersed dispersed abroad, is given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. Now Now may He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, supply and multiply the seed that you have sown, and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything with all liberality which causes thanksgiving through us to God. So notice what he say here, how you give it. Don't give because it's required of you. This isn't a tax. In the Old Testament, they had to pay a tax. There was a temple tax. There was all kinds of things that they had to give. But he's saying this is a matter of the heart. This is a matter of the heart. Say, hey, that's great. I don't have to give anything. No, you don't. You don't have to sow anything. (laughs) You don't have to sow anything. But if you don't sow anything, you don't reap anything. But he's talking here about our motive for sowing 
It's not sowing to get. It's sowing because we love. It's sowing because we're touched with a need. Because we care about those people in need. That's why we give. That's why we open our hearts to them. That's what pleases God. That's what blesses God. Here we're talking about sowing seed by giving to help meet the needs of other people. Now we're going to look at it from another perspective. Go with me to Malachi chapter 1. Now some of you think I'm headed someplace and you're wrong. Yet. I'll get there. Malachi chapter 1. The last book of the Old Testament. background here quickly. This is written at a time when the children of Israel were doing what they were supposed to do outwardly, but their hearts were far away from God. And they were getting frustrated about some things, and they had been complaining, apparently, about why God was not doing some things they thought He ought to do, and why they believed He was doing things they didn't think they had deserved. And so if you go through the book, you'll see God's answering questions that they've asked. Now, they may not have asked them in the temple, but God knows the questions you ask in your heart and in your mind. Starting right in the beginning. The burden of the the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have, verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? So they're saying in their hearts, God, you say you love us. You say you love us, but look at this mess we're in. It doesn't look to me like you've loved me very much. Now see, we're too sophisticated to actually come out and say that, but we can have that attitude in our heart. God, I've been faithful to come to church. I've been faithful to do what I'm supposed to do. I don't see it yet. I hear you love me. I see in your word that you love me but I'm really wondering whether you love me or not. Now, what we're about to read may not be the answer in your case, but it was in their case. Look what God says. Well, this one isn't our case. You say, in what way have you loved loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord, yet Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Let me explain what he's talking about there, because if you don't understand it, you can misread it. What he's saying there is, I chose you. Jacob and Esau were twins. And and Esau was the firstborn of the twins. And under 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 the law at the time, under the principles by which they operated at the time, the firstborn received the blessing. He received the inheritance. And the secondborn and the thirdborn got leftovers. And so Esau was born first and would have been entitled to that blessing. But God declared to Jacob, God declared to Isaac that the secondborn was going to be the one that got the blessing, not the firstborn. You may say, well, that's not fair. We'll read Romans 9 and we'll explain that to you later because it talks about who are we to say to God what's fair. Again, do I really want what's fair? No, I don't want what's when it comes to me. I want what God's done for me. 
And that's what he's saying here. You've said, how have I loved you? But you've forgotten that I chose you. See, the fact that Esau, the fact that, that Jacob got the blessing is because God chose him, not because he was obligated to. Under the law at the time, the obligation was to give that blessing to the firstborn. But what's represented here is God says, no, you're not getting it because you were entitled to it. You got it because I chose you over your brother Esau. So, well, that's nice in the Old Testament. You don't understand. You're here today because God chose you. You're in the kingdom of God because God chose you. Ephesians 1 says He chose you before the foundation of the world. He chose you. So when we wonder, oh God, I don't know whether you love me or not, you've forgotten how you got where you are. He chose you not because He was obligated to, because God's not obligated to do anything. He chose you because He wanted to, because He loved you. And what happens is we take that for granted and forget that and therefore think we're entitled to everything and forget that what we have to begin with is because He chose us because He loved us. Hard attitude. We start thinking we're entitled to things that He's given to us because He loved us, not because He had to. Okay. Now let's go over to verse 6, because now He's going to deal with another part of this issue. He says, Doesn't a son honor his father, and a servant honor his master? If then I am your father, where's my honor? If I am a master, where's my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts. To you priests who despise my name, yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? See, our idea of taking the Lord's name in vain is a swear word. God's idea is very different. It's not reverencing His name. It's not honoring His name. It's using His name loosely. You know, Jesus said that if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. Have you ever asked something in His name and He didn't do it? Oh, come on, be honest. (laughs) One of the reasons is, when he says, whatever you ask in my name, he doesn't mean tacking it on at the end of a prayer. And in the name of Jesus, amen. We say that so easily, it's common to us. And the fact that it's common to us means his name has become common to us. And if his name has become common to us, that means we don't have a reverence for that name. See, we've gone, we can go from one extreme to another. Many of us have come out of, of, of churches and traditions where we had stained glass windows with all kinds of relics in the church and things in which we honored the relics and we bowed to them and kissed them and did things like that. And, and we've said, well, we're free of all that because we've been delivered out of that. And we have because that's religion. But then we go to the other extreme where we toss his name around as we would anybody else's name. Jesus becomes our best bud. I don't see John referring to him as the best, his best bud in the book of Revelation. Hey, my best bud showed up. Cool. He fell on his face. Now, that, did that mean they didn't have an intimate relationship? Not at all. It's a matter of honor and respect. 
two things that are sadly being lost today. You can love one somebody, be close and, and very intimate with somebody, and yet honor who they are. Because the God that you worship is the God that you're believing is going to take care of you. If he's your best bud, then that's the one that's going to take care of you. But if he's almighty God, all right, we've got to move on here. Verse 7. You offer defiled food on my altar. But you say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer the lame and the sick, is that not evil? In other words, they were, they were, they were bringing an offering, because their offering in that day were animals that were slain. They were bringing offerings, but they were bringing what was left over. They were making this deal. You know, hey, I can get a better deal on this unblemished lamb in the market. So I'm going to hold on to that. So I'll go fulfill my obligation by bringing, you know, this blind one over. Because it's, it's a lamb. What difference does it make? See, they were fulfilling the obligation, but the attitude was, I can give anything to God. But re- what, we, what we give and how we give it reflects what we think of the one we're giving it to. I better not go there. No time. Okay. Uh, Verse 8. Is that not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? In other words, (laughs) what you're giving to me, God says... Go to your governor and offer it to him. See what he does with it. Governor, we brought this lamb for you and is diseased, is blind. Is he going to take it from you? And he's basically saying, if you wouldn't do that for a man that's your governor, why would you think I'd accept it? You know, we have this attitude that Oh, God's glad to get anything He can get from us. So that whatever I give, God's grateful. Whether it's money or praise, we have this attitude that God's just here and He'll take whatever we get whenever we get it. And right now I think that's true to a degree because God's being so gracious with us. But you understand He doesn't receive every offering. Now, whatever you give it to, that organization may receive it, but God doesn't receive every organ because He's not getting money. It's the worship He's taking, receiving. I hope you understand that your ties here actually go into an actual bank. We don't have an e- one of those electronic transfers to heaven. But your giving is to Him because it's a worship to Him. But he doesn't receive everything that's given. Because it's worship. And if it's not given as worship, he doesn't receive it. That's what he's saying here. Because it's the heart he's looking for.
But verse 9, But now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us. While this is being done in your hands, will he accept you favorably? Okay. Let's go down to verse 12. Again, talking about their, their, their giving. But you profane it, in that you say, The table of the Lord is defiled, and its fruit and its food is contemptible. You also... You also say, oh, what a weariness, and you sneer at it. In other words, they're saying, this hasn't been working. I'm tired of this. I'm giving, but it's not working. I'm tired of this. He said, when you do that, you're profaning it. Profane means to take something that's godly and holy and bring it down to an earthly level. Profaning it means you're taking an act of worship and you're bringing it down to a vending machine. I'm tired of this. It's not working. It's not producing in my life. I'm not getting anything out of this. In other words, the motive has very subtly shifted to what am I getting out of this? And remember, that's what the perverted principles operate under. The principles of God's kingdom operate under What's best for you, Lord? What pleases you? What honors you? What's right in your sight, God? And you sneer at it, and the Lord of hosts, says the Lord of hosts, you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick, and thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? Be cursed, be the deceiver, he who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices the Lord what he's blemished, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared or reverenced among the nations. Now, just to begin to sew you back up again, I'm talking to me as much as I am you. God's been dealing with me with the attitude of my heart in my giving, our giving. Not that we don't give. It's very easy to just do it as a matter of fact, the offering containers coming by, plunk it in. That's not an act of worship. Does that mean we have all got to come down here and get down on our knees? No, it doesn't. It's just checking our heart. And we're all human. We all slip into this. We're busy. And, I, you know, I had to talk to my wife this morning because in, I mean, we received the offering at the end. Sometimes... We, we know ahead of time what we're going to give, but sometimes, you know, it's the last minute, we'll fill this out, and, you know, oh, gosh, the plate's come by, we drop it in, instead of preparing. They prepared their offering and brought it. Now, there are all kinds of online ways to give, and we're looking to some of those things, and they may be okay, but my concern is they brought their offering. They brought it as an act of worship to God. How you do that, electronically or otherwise, as long as you're doing with that heart, this is an act of worship to you, God. What I have, you've given to me. Everything you've given to me. Whatever it is in your heart to give him, in terms of the, the attitude of our heart. Let me just give you several things why the Lord showed me why these principles may not be working for some. And I've covered them, really. Many times it's because our motive shifts to what we're getting. I'm not getting what I need out of this. 
or I'm giving so that I can get. God will bless you, but that can't be the motive of your giving. I give because I love Him. I give because I trust Him. I give because He's my source, and I know He'll take care of me. And we'll learn later. It's okay then, once you've done that, to stand on promises He's made. But to give to get means my motive is like this kingdom over here, not the kingdom of God over here. Second reason is my heart, I don't treasure what I'm giving. So I'm giving out of obligation. I'm giving something that doesn't have much value to me. We're going to learn because we're going to move into talking about worship in a little while. Worship basically is acknowledging His greater worth. It comes from an English word that's worth-ship. Worship is basically acknowledging His greater worth than mine. And that's reflected in what I give Him. You have somebody coming over to your house that you respect and you honor. You're going to put out the paper plates and the paper cups. That doesn't communicate that I really treasure your visit. Or you're going to get your best china out, whatever that may be. doesn't mean you have to have a certain things. See, they, they gave different types of animals, but what it is, or whatever they had, they gave their best to him. Because he'd given their best to them. Because he was the most important thing to them, therefore he gave the best to them. And they gave it in a way, they were to give it in a way, where they did it out of reverence and love for him, not out of obligation. So what we shift, slip into is... We stop giving our best. We start giving out of habit because it's just what we're supposed to do. Or we give out of obligation because we feel guilty and God's going to be mad at us. He's going to cut us off if we don't do that. All of those are the wrong motives. All of those are somehow operating under the perverted principle of the world. Which remember, it's based on a truth that Satan has convinced us to operate in the reverse order. And so it all comes back, as we began this whole series, it all comes back to Him. We talked about, in the very beginning, that garden, where that man and woman were so caught up in who God was, they weren't even aware that they had no clothes on. They were not aware of their needs. They were so caught up in who He is, and the result is they had no needs. It was called paradise. The deception was to get them to focus on themselves and taking care of themselves. And it brought them out of that kingdom and operating under perverted, perverted principles. And we brought that into our worship. We brought that into our giving. We brought that into almost everything we do with God because we've been indoctrinated to think that way. And we brought that into the church. So God's not mad at us today. He wasn't mad at them back then. He was answering their questions the questions that are in their hearts. And there's some of you here this morning, you've got questions in your hearts, whether you're fully aware of it or not, about some of these things. Why has it not been working? Why this? Why that? And the answer may well be to look inside of yourself. You may not have realized, and I, I forget what I'm doing sometimes. You get so busy, you just start getting into a habit and doing it out of a habit. But see, I can do that in my relationship with my wife. We just start, you know, go through the routine. Get up in the morning, go through the routine, because we're both very busy. And realize, well, wait a minute. We're losing touch with each other. I didn't marry her so that we could be business partners together. I didn't marry her so we could operate a household together. I married her because I was in love with her. 
I'm still in love with her today more than I was back then. Therefore, we need to communicate and what I do for her needs to not be done out of obligation but because I love her. I want to see her blessed. I want to see her enjoy her life with me. I want to see her have the best. I want to see her because I love her, not because she manipulates it out of me. See, so many of us think God's manipulating things from us. And the reason we do that is because we manipulate from other people. This kingdom operates on manipulation. This kingdom operates on truth. We're going to pray now. And we're going to prepare in a moment. First of all, I'm going to give an opportunity as we pray now for somebody to sow their life. Father, we come to you right now in the name of Jesus and we thank you, Lord, for your word because your word tells us to gain understanding. Later on in this book, Father, you, you correct and you chide the priests because they'd stop giving understanding of the law so that the people could follow it. We trust today, Father, that by your grace you've begun to give us understanding. And so we come to you, Father, and tell you that for where we've been wrong, where we've missed it, in most of our cases it was just either ignorance or we just didn't realize or we forgot or lost track. We ask you to forgive us. Father, help us to see where our hearts are towards you as reflected in our giving, in our worship, in all that we do for you. That it's not just money, but it's our lives that worship you. Help us to have understanding of that, Father. We thank you for your mercy and your grace as we get ready to worship you and go from this place, Father, that you go with us to continue to encourage us, to teach us, correct us, and direct us. We thank you for that grace in Jesus' name.